John chapter 8, we left off with Jesus' proclamation and invitation in John chapter 4. Uh, Jesus said, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. And he, he more than said it, he, he shouted it out to everyone there gathered uh, together he, at, the, at the, the, the Feast of, of Tabernacles, the, the last great day of the feast. If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink, Jesus shouted. And he said, he who believes in me, as the, scriptures, uh, as the Scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. And you can listen to that message from last week for the expounding on that. But the story concludes with the division among the people. Some of the people uh, were persuaded that Jesus indeed was the Messiah, and tragically, others among them simply would not believe. And as we come now to John chapter 8, the text focuses on a story, a very famous story of a woman caught in adultery. And let me just give you the big idea of our text today. We're going to focus on the first 11 verses of chapter 8. Um, and the big idea and the focus of our text centers on two key truths. Number one, that God forgives sin. And number two, that God transforms sinners. Great promise, no matter who you are, no matter what you have done, you need to hear the truth of God's Word today as we're going to jump into this. No matter who you are, no matter what you have done, listen, God loves you. God loves you with an incredible love. And if you will cooperate with the Lord, if you will trust in the Lord and then uh, allowing Him not only to transform your, your life in terms of <coughs> your eternal destination and your eternal hope, but experiencing a transformation here on earth, and, and that's just it. What happens is, is that as you trust your life to God, uh, he, in His love, He saves you, and in His love, He transforms you. We're going to look at that uh, today. We're going to pick it up in context in verse uh, 53 of chapter 7, um, and, uh, and just continue uh, down through the first uh, five verses as we begin. Um, it says that everyone went to his own house. This was when everybody was gathered for the Feast of Tabernacles and they were all, all you know, camping out and so on. And so it was the last day of the feast. And so at the conclusion of the feast, <coughs> it says that everyone went to his own house. But verse 1, chapter 8, Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. The Mount of Olives there, if you've been to Jerusalem, it sits uh, just up there, looks across the, t the Kidron Valley and then up to the Temple Mount uh, where the Temple would have been. It's a glorious sight. And uh, it says, verse 2, Now early in the morning, uh, Jesus came again into the Temple, and all the people came to Him, and He sat down and He taught them. This is the traditional position of the rabbi, of the teacher, that they would sit and teach. And so Jesus sits down and He taught them. And then, verse 3, The scribes and the Pharisees brought to Him a woman caught in adultery, and when they had set her in the midst, they said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in adultery in the very act. Now Moses in the law commanded us that such should be stoned, but what do you say? Now let me just do this. Before we can really take off and dig into this message, 
um, we have to first, uh, as, as someone once said, just clear the, 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 the debris from the runway. And uh, the, the debris on the runway here is that there's some debate on whether uh, these, these, th this account of this woman caught in adultery, uh, whether it belongs here in John chapter 8. And, and I will just say it's not really debatable whether or not this event ever happened, if it's, if it's true or if it's not. It certainly is true. But it is, and I will concede, it is debatable who actually wrote it, and where it belongs in the Gospels. Some translators believe that John chapter 8, verses 1 through 11, actually belongs in Luke's Gospel, and some older manuscripts actually place this event there. Um, other translations include this story um, at the end of, the, of John's Gospel, simply because they, they don't know where it fits chronologically in the story. However, the story does seem to flow perfectly from the events that we've just covered in John chapter 7 with the religious leaders bent on attacking Jesus, and that's what they're doing here. Spoiler alert, they're setting him up here. This is a setup, uh, and, uh, and they're trying to take him down. And so I'm personally in agreement with the fact that certainly the story is true, and I think it fits perfectly right here in John chapter 8. Now, whether or not this story belongs here, let me just simply reiterate, it is true, number one. But secondly, and thirdly, it's not only a very famous story, but it's our story. It's a famous story in that both believers and non-believers alike, uh, they tend to know this story, and they, they love to quote it. Um, how Jesus doesn't condemn, you know, this woman caught in adultery. Neither do I condemn you, is what Jesus will famously say as we move through the text. And so many people seem to know that. And it sort of fits right up there with Matthew chapter 7, where Jesus said, uh, judge not, lest you also be judged. And, you know, every non-believer in the world turns into a Bible scholar, seems to know at least these two stories. Hey, Jesus said not to judge, man. Jesus told the woman caught in adultery, hey, I, I don't condemn you, kind of thing. So, so it's a very famous story. But listen as well, we need to understand this is our story. Because we are all guilty, guilty sinners standing before a holy God. And so the big idea and the focus of our outline today centers on these two key truths. Number one, that God forgives sin. And secondly, that God transforms sinners. If you're taking notes, write down our first point. God forgives sin. And I'll just simply tell you this. I'm going to spend a lot of time on this point. I'm going to spend a brief period of time on the second point, And then we'll pray and we'll be done. I want you, first of all, to picture the scene here. Jesus has gone to the temple. He has sat down. He is now teaching in the temple. And all of a sudden, the religious leaders bring this woman in. And so, you know, we, in our mind's eye, I put myself, you know, in the sanctuary. We're all gathered together, and I'm in the process of teaching. And all of a sudden, there's a commotion in the back, and all of a sudden, everybody's turning. What's going on here? And they're parading this woman in, uh, in, uh, in, you know, just you know, in, in shameful fashion. And um, so here they come. They drag this poor woman in. Now, there's absolutely no doubt whatsoever she is guilty. She is guilty of what 
you know, they are asserting that she has done, that she has committed adultery, that they have caught her in the very act. But listen, I want you in your mind's eye to, to look at this plight of this woman, um, not from a judgmental eye as these religious leaders have, but if we can just consider with a heart of compassion um, what's going on. That, that yes, she's guilty, but she's also, no doubt, absolutely humiliated. Absolutely humiliated. Her sin has been laid bare and open for the world to see. You know from experience, I know from experience, what it is to be absolutely humiliated. When I was five years old, I was in kindergarten, and I remember I peed my pants right there, right in the classroom. And I was absolutely humiliated. And all I wanted to do was to take care of the problem discreetly. Even at five years old, I was like, okay, how can I, how can I get out of here and call my mom, you know, to take care of this? And, and yet, you know, these, these two little girls that were my classmates, and they meant well, God bless them, they really truly did. But, you know, they're like, oh, you, you've wet your pants, you've wet your pants, let's talk to the teacher. And, and now before you know it, the whole classroom knows about it, kids pointing, kids laughing. I was, I was absolutely humiliated, you know. Um, but listen, while it is true, and let's just consider this thing biblically, while it is true that the Bible commands that we are to confess our sins and that we're not to hide our sins, it is also true that public shaming is not part of the process. Public shaming is not part of the process. Now, you may recall Jesus' words in Matthew chapter 18, where he talks about if your brother sins against you. And he says, if you're, moreover, if your brother sins against you, Matthew 18 verse 15, go and tell him his fault between you and him. Do it alone. Between you and him alone is what Jesus says. If he hears you, you have gained your brother. Now, Jesus then goes through a process, right? And so if the brother does not repent, <coughs> there is a biblical process that we are to follow to, um, to, to accomplish restoration. And that's the goal. The goal is not to humiliate. The goal is not to pass judgment. The goal is to restore the wrong, right? And certainly in that restoration process, if the person hardens their heart, there does reach a point in time where it involves the larger assembly of the church. But, but humiliation is never part of the equation. The process of restoration always begins with humility, not with humiliation. Paul, speaking to the Galatians in Galatians 6.1, he said, Brethren, if a man is overtaken in any trespass, you who are spiritual, uh, restore such a one. Here's what he says. In a spirit of gentleness, considering yourself, lest you also be tempted. That word gentleness that Paul uses there in Galatians 6.1, literally it means mildness of disposition, uh, and a gentleness of spirit. And, and get this, the idea, the focus is not on humiliating the sinner, but on an inner grace of the soul. Let me unpack that. The idea is that the exercise of it is first and chiefly 
toward God. In other words, gentleness means that we temper our spirit with a view towards how gracious God has been in dealing with us in our sin, right? And with that in mind and with that in focus, that kind of humility, there but for the grace of God go I, then, therefore, what we do is we behave with humility towards other people in their sin, right? It's not that we sweep it under the rug, it's just that we deal with it in a spirit of humility and in a spirit of grace, understanding that I myself am a sinner who God has had much grace and mercy upon, and God has, has gently restored me in my times of failing in the past, and so, so I'm going to be careful with, with how I seek to restore my brother. Well, take note, that's not how they treat this woman. They drag her unceremoniously in before all the people, and, and their intent is to stone her. And so not only is this woman humiliated beyond belief, man, she's also terrified. She's absolutely terrified. Now, we need to get the picture of actual stoning in our head. We read about people being stoned in the Bible, or hey, we want to stone them, but... but being familiar with it, it loses the, the absolute horror and graphic terror of what it is and what this woman is going through. She has to be absolutely terrified as, as what is awaiting her. Let me just share this with you just to get our minds in the right place. And I, I don't intend um, uh, to be crude here uh, or, or overly graphic, but I want, it, I want us to understand uh, what stoning biblically actually involved. In the Jewish Mishnah, it describes how a person was to be stoned. The Old Testament uh, did in fact say that there were certain conditions, and adultery was one of them, where a person was to be stoned. <clears throat> Number one, the place of the stoning would be, and I'm going to give you this description with this woman in mind, okay? And so her place of stoning would be twice her height, right, with rocks below, and then she would be stripped naked, and then what would happen is that one of the witnesses would then push her by her hips so that she fell forward and landed face first on the rocks. And then once that happened, they would then turn her over on her back, and then the second witness would take a large boulder, a large stone, and would then throw it onto her chest. And then she would be systematically pulverized by rocks from everyone else. They would all throw these rocks at her. And, and listen, it was not unusual for this process of stoning to take anywhere from 20 minutes to as long as two hours. And understand, this actually happened in biblical times. Um, we read in the book of Acts how Stephen, the first martyr of the church, how they stoned him to death. We read uh, in church history about James, the half-brother of Jesus, who became the leader of the church in Jerusalem, and ultimately what they did to him, uh, according to church history, was that they threw him off of the temple mount and when that didn't kill him, they then went through the process that I've just described to stone him to death. And so this woman, now facing stoning, understand her experience would be, 
I've seen this happen before. I've watched this gruesome, awful practice happen to other people, and I can't believe now that in a matter of, of minutes or hours that this is going to be me. By the way, this still happens in some of the parts of the Mideast today. There was, back in 2008, there was, there was a worldwide outcry uh, when Aisha uh, du, uh, Duwalo, uh, uh, Dohulo, a 13-year-old Somali girl, she was buried up to her neck, and then she was stoned by 50 men in, in the presence of 1,000 people at a stadium in southern Somalia. And the details of that are just, just horribly wrong, just completely in, uh, in injustice done uh, to her. But now I want you, with that in mind, I want you to put, the, put yourself in this woman's place. How terrified would you be? Now keep in mind, she's not the only person in this story. Who's missing? The man. Hey, we caught her in adultery in the very act. Listen, uh, adultery is a, is a team sport, right? It's not, you know, it's, it's not an individual sport, right? And, and so the man is missing. But listen... This story actually deals, this is important, and it's a thread we're going to wave all the way throughout this, this, this lesson. This story actually deals with three groups of people. Because we've got this woman, and understand she's guilty and she was caught red-handed. But we've also got the man. He's equally guilty, but yet he seems to have gotten away with it. And thirdly, we've got these religious leaders. They too are guilty, but they're focusing on everyone else's guilt, right? Now, I pointed out that the man was missing from this story. You know who else is missing from the story? You and me are missing from this story. See, this story deals with these three groups of people, and you and I are in one of these three groups. We either did it, whatever it is, and we got caught, or we did it, whatever it is, and we seem to get away with it. Or we did it, and we won't acknowledge our sin because we're busy pointing the finger at everybody else's sin. Now hold that thought and notice what they say to Jesus in verses uh, 4 uh, into verse 6. <clears throat> they say to him, teacher... This woman was caught in adultery in the very act. Now Moses in the law commanded us that such should be stoned. But what do you say? This, verse 6, they said, testing him that they might have something of which to accuse him. Stop right there. In other words, this is a setup. This is, it's a trap. This is a trap, right? This is a classic setup. They are using the woman as bait. They're using the law as a trap, and they're using or and they're focusing on Jesus as their prey. I like what William Barclay said in his commentary. He says they were not looking on this woman as a person at all. They were looking on her only as a thing, an instrument whereby they could formulate a charge against Jesus. Now here's the trap. In Old Testament law, adultery was in fact punishable. By stoning. So if Jesus here answers them and says, let her go, then he would seem to be breaking the law of Moses. If Jesus, on the other hand, said, 
yep, she's guilty, execute her, then not only is he going to seem harsh and cruel and maybe uh, put, cast him in a different light uh, in the eyes of the people because that ultimately these, these religious leaders, they would have they taken Jesus uh, before this. They're afraid of the people. And you see that, that theme over and over again in the, in the gospel accounts that these religious leaders, they're, they're classic politicians and they want everybody to love them. And, uh, and so, <laughs> it's an uphill battle. And so they're, you know, they... They're worried about the people. So if, if Jesus says execute her, well, then that's going to accomplish the purpose of having the people turn against him. But not only that, if Jesus said to execute her, he'd actually be breaking Roman law. Because remember, the, the nation of Israel is now under Roman occupation. And so the law of Rome controls the day. And one of the things that the Romans did was they told the religious leaders, look, we understand you've got your religious laws and all, and that part of your religious laws are that you can kill people but you can't kill anybody unless we give you permission to kill them. Um, and, um, and so they had taken away the right of official execution. But as we continue in verse 6, notice that Jesus stooped down and he wrote on the ground with his finger as though he did not hear. And so when they continued asking him, he raised himself up and he said to them, he who is without sin among you, let him throw a stone at her first. Now, there's a lot of conjecture as to what Jesus specifically wrote when he stooped down and began to write in the dirt. Uh, some, think, some think that he didn't really write anything. He just sort of doodled uh, in, in the dirt. And the reason they say that is because the verb that's translated wrote in verse 6, could also mean to draw. And, uh, and so the speculation is, is that he either doodled for time to think because, you know, he was fully God, but he was also fully man. And so, hey, this is a complex situation. I need some time to think, um, which, which I discount on the face of it. Or that he stooped down and doodled just because he was ignoring them. Like, I'm not even going to dignify this undignified thing that you guys are doing. I'm just going to ignore you, Right? So some people think that. Other people think that when Jesus stooped down to write in the dirt that he, you know, wrote out the Ten Commandments or that he wrote out, uh, you know, like in Daniel chapter 5, uh, weighed and found wanting, right, was what uh, the finger of God had written in that account. Um, and, you know, the, the reason they think this is because Jesus is writing with his finger and two times in Scripture, at least a couple of times in Scripture, we see God writing with his finger, one when he wrote the Ten Commandments, and the other when uh, he proclaimed uh, judgment on Belshazzar in Daniel chapter 5. Um, the most popular opinion, and you've probably heard this opinion, there are many that teach it, was that Jesus wrote the names of the accusers, these guys that had dragged this poor woman in, and said, hey, we, we, we want to stone her to death because she was caught in the very act of adultery. And so what people speculate is when Jesus stooped down, that he was writing the names of her accusers, and then when he stoops down again the second time, which we'll see in a minute, uh, to write in the dirt, then he began to write their charges against them, right? Um, and <clears throat> so it's a compelling argument. It's a compelling thought. Um, William Barclay again uh, points out that the Greek word for wrote in verse 6, one, it can be mean to doodle, but the other thing that it could mean is to write down a record against someone. 
And, and, and so it could, in fact, be that Jesus was writing the names of the accusers and their sins that they themselves is, have committed. And, but we've got to ask ourselves the question, which one is it? And here's the thing. We don't know. The Bible does not tell us what Jesus wrote in the dirt. But here's what the text does say. And that's very important because you'll notice that uh, in verse 9, it says, then those who heard it being convicted by their conscience went out one by one, beginning with the oldest, even to the last. And the, the word there, heard, it literally means to perceive by the ear. So it's important that we not conjecture about what it was Jesus wrote, but we focus in on what Jesus said because the text will tell us that it's what he said that brought this conviction to them. And so here's what the text does say. Jesus said, he who, was out with, he who was without sin among you, let him throw a stone at her first. Understand this. In Jewish law, if, if you were coming as a witness to a capital crime, which is what these men are doing, they drag this woman in, we caught her in the very act. We are witnesses. Well, in, in, in Jewish law, if you are a witness to a capital crime, then you are personally responsible to begin the stoning process. But the Bible commands in Exodus chapter 23, do not put your hand with the wicked to be an unrighteous witness. And Jesus is going to point out that these guys are in fact unrighteous witnesses. By the way, there are those that speculate that it was Exodus 23. Uh, uh, 23 verse, verse 1, the last part of verse 1 there, that's what Jesus wrote in the sand. Again, we don't know. But the Bible does command that you're not to, to be a, a wicked and unrighteous witness. And Jesus points out with this simple question that he asks that the witnesses themselves were unrighteous. See, what Jesus is really saying here, if I can put words in his mouth, what Jesus is saying is, okay, fine, we can execute her but we have to do it correctly. One of you witnesses has to begin this woman's execution. And, and so Jesus you know, could well say, so who among you is the one that witnessed this crime and only brought the woman in before me and you didn't bring the man in also? See, instead of passing a sentence upon the woman, what Jesus did was he passed a sentence upon her accusers. He basically said, uh, you know, he didn't say, you know, don't execute her. He simply demanded that justice be fairly, equally, and righteously applied. And since it wasn't, they have no right to stone her. Look at verses 8 and 9. So it says again, he stooped down and he wrote out on the ground after he asked the question, after he said he was without sin among you, let him throw a stone at her first. So he stoops down, he writes on the ground, verse 9, and then those who heard it, heard his words, being convicted by their conscience, they went out one by one, beginning with the oldest, even to the last, and Jesus was left alone and the woman standing in the midst. Let me read the last part of verse 9 to you again because it's key. Jesus was left alone and the woman Standing in the midst. So it was, a, it was a boatload of accusers, the woman and Jesus, and now it's just Jesus and her. Just Jesus and her. 
Here's the application for us. At the end of the day, the only righteous judge, because these witnesses were unrighteous, the end of the day, the only righteous judge that you and I will face is Jesus Christ. You have no end of people who may be your accusers. You may have no end of people that witness against you. But at the end of the day, there is only one righteous judge who you will give an account of your life to, who you will stand before, and that is Jesus. It will be you, and it will be Jesus. It won't be you, and oh, my you know, grandfather was a pastor. It won't be you, and oh, my wife went to church every Sunday. It won't be you and, hey, my, you know, my, my wife writes out a tithe check every day and I earn that money and so technically I'm giving you know, to the Lord. No, no, no. At the end of your life, the only righteous judge that you and I will face is Jesus. And listen, understand, whatever group it is that you and I are in, whether we're guilty and we were caught, whether it is we're guilty and we seem to be getting away with it, or... We're guilty and we are self-righteous. No matter what group you're in, a day is coming when you will stand before the Lord. The writer of Hebrews in Hebrews 4.13 tells us that nothing in all creation <clears throat> is hidden from God. Everything is naked and exposed before His eyes and He is the one to whom we are accountable. But listen, the story doesn't end there. And let me emphasize for you, your story doesn't have to end there. Look at verses 10 and 11. It says, When Jesus had raised himself up and he saw no one but the woman, he said to her, Woman, where are those accusers of yours? Has no one condemned you? And she said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said to her, Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. Notice this woman's response. She says, no one, Lord. That's important. In this response, here in verse 11, we have the entire gospel in one verse. And it all hinges on these two key things that Jesus says. Neither do I condemn you, and go and sin no more. That word condemn that Jesus uses in verse 11, it means literally to judge against and to pass sentence upon. To judge against and to pass sentence upon. And Jesus here has every right as a righteous judge to judge against this woman <clears throat> and to pass sentence upon her because she's guilty. And you and I are guilty for that matter as well. But the heart of God, and this is what I want you to hear, the heart of God is not to condemn. The heart of God is to save. Romans 5.8, God demonstrates His own love towards us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. This is known as the doctrine of justification, and that is simply God's work for you on the cross of Jesus Christ. He who knew no sin became sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Romans 8 verses 1 and 2 tells us for God or um, I'm sorry, John 3:16 and 17 tells us for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not have should not perish but have everlasting life. Listen to, to <clears throat> John 3:17 
For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world. He says to this woman, neither do I condemn you. God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through Him might be saved. Romans 8, 1 and 2. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. And Romans 8, verses 31 through 34 basically says, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own Son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Justified. Just as if I'd never sinned. Why? Because he who knew no sin became sin for me so that I might become the righteousness of God, not because of what I've done, but because of what he has done. It is God who justifies. Verse 34 of Romans chapter 8. Who is he who condemns? It is Christ who died and furthermore is also risen, who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. Now, I told you when we started that the big idea and the focus of our outline today centers on two key truths. Number one, that God forgives sin. We've been unpacking that for the better part of half an hour. Let's get down to the second point. God transforms sinners. God transforms sinners. Jesus says to this woman, go and sin no more. Literally, stop your sinful habit. Stop your sinful habit. Now, this is the doctrine of sanctification. I told you that that justification is God's work for us in the person and work of Christ. Sanctification is God's work in us and God's work through us once He makes us a new creation in Christ. And here's the great news about sanctification, guys, that it's God's work. It's not our work. Yes, we have to cooperate with God. It requires that we obey, and it requires that we die to our flesh and and choose to obey God. As Jesus says to this woman, go and sin no more. Right? She's been justified. Why? Lord, she, she, she's calling Jesus Lord. And so she's justified in the work that Jesus is going to do on the cross to pay the penalty for her sin. And now he's saying, now that you've been justified, it is time <clears throat> for you to engage in the sanctification process. Go and sin no more. Paul told the Philippians in Philippians 1.6, I am certain that God who began the good work within you, justifying you on the cross, dying for your sin, taking your sins upon himself, God who began the good work in you will, Paul says, continue his work, sanctification, ongoing, God working, in, God working not, not just working for you in justification, but now working in you and through you. He will continue his work until it is finally finished on the day when Christ Jesus returns. And so, guys, whatever group you're in today, you're guilty and you were caught. You're guilty and you seem to be getting away with it. Or you're guilty and you're self-righteous. Jesus says to you, repent and go and sin no more.
we sang in worship today this beautiful song, and I just want to, I just want to uh, reflect on a couple of the verses. In the darkness we were waiting, without hope and without light, till from heaven you came running. There was mercy in your eyes to reveal the kingdom coming and to reconcile the lost, to redeem the whole creation. You did not despise the cross. For even in your suffering, you saw to the other side. Knowing this was our salvation, Jesus, for our sake, for our sins, you died. One last observation, very quickly. And it's a simple observation, and it's this. We never know this woman's name. Never mentions her name. Everybody there knew her name. Everyone them, everyone there, they knew her name or they knew, maybe even more acquainted with, the names that they had assigned to this woman. They knew her as a tramp, as a harlot, as a slut, as a homewrecker. But when we meet this woman in heaven, she'll have a new name in the kingdom of God. That's God's promise to you and me today. As well, I'm going to pray for us in just a minute, and I'm going to give you an invitation. Maybe today you need to have this transformation work done in your life. You need the justification that can only come through the blood of Jesus Christ. You need to be forgiven of your sins and receive salvation. And you need to have a transforming ongoing process of becoming that new creation, allowing he who began a good work in you to complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. And so I'm going to give you that opportunity, but I want to close with three questions as we always do. And these questions are designed so you could write them down and take a prayerful walk with them uh, this week. If you're in one of our uh, community groups, then you can take that time uh, to discuss this with your community group. Question number one, which category... Do I identify with today? Am I guilty and caught? Am I guilty and getting away with it? Or am I guilty and self-righteous? Which category do you belong in today? By the way, <laughs> it's possible we could belong in all three categories. Question number two, what have I done with my guilt and shame? I would say, what am I doing? with my guilt and shame. Third and final question, what are some ways that I'm guilty of being self-righteous?